We in the media love a good narrative, like a heroic young lawyer battling an evil corporation for the rights of oppressed people, or a blameless company being victimized by greedy and unprincipled class action attorneys. But the truth is rarely that straightforward. Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls. Today, we're speaking with Paul M. Barrett, Assistant Managing Editor and Senior Writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, and the author of four books, including Glock, The Rise of America's Gun, and his most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, Law of the Jungle, the $19 billion legal battle over oil in the rainforest and the lawyer who'd stop at nothing to win. Thanks for joining us, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So tell me how you got involved in this story, became aware of it, and a little bit of background to this case. Sure. Well, this is a case that's been going on uh, now for for 21 years. I noticed it and and began following it, uh, oh, probably, I'd say, about uh, seven or eight years ago, as it began to to gain some real momentum, uh, both in the media and in terms of the amount of celebrity uh, intervention in the case that it received, the subject of a celebrated documentary a 60-minute segment, a Vanity Fair article, the New York Times covered it, and eventually uh, I decided I needed to step in. And uh, in February of 2011, when the Ecuadorian court held Chevron uh, liable uh, to the tune of $19 billion with a B for uh, uh, oil pollution that had taken place beginning all the way back in the early 1970s, I decided I should do a profile for Business Week uh, of the uh, plaintiff's lawyer, the American plaintiff's lawyer who won this uh, extraordinary victory, or at least it seemed like an extraordinary victory at the time. Um, I remember first hearing about this case, uh, probably around the same time, and really I thought of it too as a pretty straightforward narrative. I thought, oh yes, this oil company, you know, is responsible for all this pollution. What a wonderful verdict! And well, it- when you combine uh, when you combine uh, the rainforest multinational oil company and uh, indigenous tribe members. Most people think that they know the story right with just those three facts. But as you said in your your introduction, um, life is always more complicated than that. The oil industry, while certainly a dirty industry, um, operates in ways that most people actually don't understand, particularly in these far-flung areas like the uh, rainforest in, in Ecuador. And the legal system, above all, um, is not always the most reliable guide or mechanism for getting at the basic uh, facts of the situation, counterintuitive as that may seem, since the legal system is actually set up to to try to dig out the facts. Well, that's not always the way it works. Um, let's talk a little bit, since you know he, he even made it into your subhead, about this American attorney, the one who you became aware of and, and did this profile for, um, Stephen Donziger. Uh, what is his background? Donziger is a is an activist. Um, out of uh, college, he went to American University. Um, he went immediately to Latin America, where he worked as a wire service reporter and then a freelance writer, covering the uh, Nicaraguan Civil War in the early 1980s. He was very impressed by the leftist Sandinistas who were fighting against the American-backed uh, right-wing militias known as the Contras. He came back to uh, the United States after four years, decided that journalism was not going to be his calling, that he wanted to find some other cause to pursue. He went to uh, Harvard Law School, where he was friends with uh, a a classmate named Barack Obama. Um, But unlike Obama, who uh, became the president of the Harvard Law Review 
and prepared himself for a political career, uh, Donziger uh, saw himself much more as a a rabble-rousing activist. And a couple of years after graduating, he became aware of this nascent lawsuit in uh, in Ecuador. At this time, the case was uh, to be filed in 1993 in the federal court in New York, and the defendant was uh, Texaco which had been active in Ecuador since the uh, late 1960s. And this, this uh, campaign to hold Texaco accountable for the uh, undisputed uh, oil pollution that existed on the ground in the rainforest was something that very much appealed to Stephen Donziger. And he uh, dove in, as he uh, characteristically does. And over time, he came to be the lead lawyer um, in this very, very long-lasting, sprawling uh, liability case uh, first against Texaco, and then after Chevron acquired Texaco in 2001, Chevron became the defendant. Now, there are class action lawsuits against um, big corporations all the time. With a complicated um, case like this that's you know spanning international borders and is about a small area in Ecuador, I believe it's El Oriente, is that? Yes, the east, which is a an area in the northeast of the, of the country, just east of the Andes mountain range and south of the border with Colombia. It seems like this would be a case that would be very easy for people to ignore. How was Donziger able to draw such massive attention to it and be so successful in um, publicizing the case? Well, this is one of his um, really central skills. He has a, a rare understanding of how to uh, draw media attention and crucially also the attention of celebrities who in turn draw media attention uh, to a cause like this lawsuit. The first element really had to do with the the optics of the case itself. Uh, he uh, and his fellow lawyers, although eventually he became the lead lawyer, would bring, for example, to New York when this case be- began, would bring residents of this region, El Oriente, um, to New York and display them as uh, examples of the the victims of the the oil uh, degradation. And um, while at home, many of these tribe members or or few of these tribe members would ever wear their traditional uh, garments up in New York, they would be very colorfully adorned. And this is just sort of catnip to to the media who who would love the uh, opposition of these uh, indigenous tribe members, some of whom not only didn't speak English, some of them didn't even speak Spanish. They spoke, uh, you know, very, very uh, obscure uh, languages, and they had very compelling stories about having lived in this unspoiled uh, area of the country, which, beginning in the 1960s, was ex- exploited for the for the oil industry. And that story of the the hapless and helpless. Indians and farmers in the rainforest facing off against the oil company is one that's very compelling to a lot of people, and and understandably so. The thing was, that actually wasn't the full story. And let me give you just an an example of some of the important details that uh, Stephen Donziger tended not to emphasize. The basic one was that uh, Texaco had not snuck into Ecuador uh, in the dark of night. Uh, Texaco had basically answered an invitation from Ecuador uh, in the 1960s, which was looking for outside investment, and in particular was looking for uh, foreign uh, oil companies who would help Ecuador exploit its natural resources um, in the, the Amazon region. 
And through this whole uh, time, uh, Ecuador was basically a partner with Texaco, and by the 1980s was actually deriving the lion's share of the proceeds um, from the oil industry. And the oil industry had basically become the backbone of the Ecuadorian economy. And while certainly there were terrible environmental side effects, there also were very positive aggregate economic effects for Ecuadorian society as a whole. So my point being that that doesn't necessarily bear on uh, whether the oil company is liable or not, but there's actually a very complex social and economic and political conflict or set of conflicts out of which this dispute arose. And Donziger was very successful at simplifying that conflict so that it seemed like a very basic almost biblical uh, morality tale, David versus Goliath, and obviously, who are you going to root for? You're going to root for David. So that's uh, in large part how he was able to draw a lot of media attention to it. And then over time, celebrities like Bianca Jagger, the ex-wife of Rolling Stone's frontman Mick Jagger, and later Sting and his wife, Trudy Styler, the, the movie producer and actress, they all got involved in the case personally visited the region, uh, were heavily involved in the making of um, a documentary that was later made, and that documentary got a, a lot of attention. And so all of this kind of combined together to to make the case a, a very romantic mission in many people's minds. And then with the successful verdict of $19 billion against Chevron, who had you know purchased Texaco, uh, it seemed that this was a story of pure triumph. So when did the worm sort of turn, and when did people become more aware of the actual complexity of the case? When did you become aware of the actual complexity of the case? Well, even in my very first piece uh, about Donziger, at that point, back in 2011, it was already clear that Chevron was raising serious questions about the methods that Donziger and his colleagues had used to reach this extraordinary uh, result. Chevron was already suggesting, for example, that... um, some of the scientific experts who had contributed crucial technical reports supporting the plaintiff's case, that some of those experts had themselves disavowed their own reports, said that Donziger had distorted them, or he had actually um, basically forged their signatures on reports that they had not authored. And I included all of that uh, information uh, in the the original, you know, the first profile of him, which raised the the question of whether uh, the the very sort of you know victory by any means necessary, uh, at taking any any methods to get to the goal, whether that mindset was both uh, the explanation for how Donziger had uh, persisted for so long and how he had seemingly triumphed, but also how he perhaps had undermined his client's own case, and as time went along. Uh, Chevron was doing more and more investigation, not so much of the oil pollution, but of Donziger's methods in litigating about the oil pollution. And uh, almost simultaneously with the uh, return of that that monster verdict, Chevron actually filed a civil racketeering case against Donziger personally and his clients back in the court in New York. And it was through the litigation of that case, all the discovery in that case, that the evidence um, of his misconduct began to come to the surface. Now, I found that rather startling. Maybe I just don't know about previous RICO cases like this, but was this an unusual move by Chevron and their legal counsel to file a RICO suit against 
um, these successful plaintiffs' attorneys and the plaintiffs themselves? It's a very good question. And Chevron, with its outside law firm, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, which, by the way, Chevron brought into the case relatively late in the game when Chevron basically realized, you know what, we're going to lose in Ecuador. The whole, all the momentum in Ecuador is going against us. They literally switched law firms. They fired their old law firm that was leading the case, and they brought in Gibson Dunn. And a big part of Gibson Dunn's assignment was to basically kill the messenger, figure out what it is that Donziger has been up to, and possibly use his misconduct as a way to undermine the legitimacy of whatever the Ecuadorian court uh, is to do. And uh, Gibson Dunn was very successful in that mission in turning up fabricated evidence, technical experts who who eventually disavow uh, their work, getting uh, financiers of the case to uh, admit that they had been defrauded um, by Donziger and so forth. And in answer to your question, yes, it is unusual for a corporate defendant to turn around, turn the tables, file a civil RICO case against the plaintiff's lawyers and basically say to the court, your honor, this may have started as a legitimate lawsuit, but it evolved into an extortion racket. It involved into the improper use of pressure uh, and coercion, and, and that's what uh, this, this plaintiff's lawyer is up to. And at this point, the Chevron case is a crucial test case for whether this strategy will work. Several other major corporations have followed suit. They include um, CSX uh, Corporation, the, the big transportation corporation. Um, there's a a company that makes gaskets called Garlock, which has used this RICO uh, table-turning strategy on plaintiffs' lawyers suing over uh, alleged uh, asbestos exposure. And we're, the, everyone is keeping an eye on the Chevron case to see whether this ultimately will be a, a successful gambit. And I think if Chevron's victory, because it's important to emphasize in March 2014, Chevron won that RICO case, uh, a federal judge concluded that Donziger had defrauded Chevron, that what had started out as a a lawsuit became uh, a shakedown. Uh, If that's upheld on appeal in any form, I think it's fair to to predict that you'll see other companies trying the, the same strategy. You know, there's that saying that bad cases make bad law. Do you think that this would be a, a dangerous result? I think this case, you know, the, the, the hard facts making bad law, um, I, I think is, is very well illustrated by this case in, in a number of regards. I think it is very troubling to imagine um, that corporate defendants would be in a position to argue that mass litigation, whether it's on behalf of consumers or alleged pollution victims or what have you, uh, is is no more than an extortion racket, uh, that the pressure created by mass litigation uh, should be seen as illegal coercion, because that could describe um, you know, practically all class action litigation. And if a, a RICO countersuit were the threat in every single case, you might end up basically deterring all kinds of legitimate, righteous uh, lawsuits, whether it would be over, you know, defective products or, uh, uh, you know, unidentified side effects from pharmaceuticals or, or what have you. So I think that could could make some very questionable law if it's upheld. But there have been other, other aspects of this case that I think make for bad law in a variety of ways. For example, Chevron's success in persuading the federal judge in New York to allow it to uh, obtain the field tapes from that 
documentary I mentioned, which is a documentary called Crude, which debuted in 2009. It was a highly acclaimed documentary, sympathetic to Donziger. Um, Chevron demanded to see all of the filmmakers' uh, field tapes because they said that would yield evidence of Donziger's alleged wrongdoing. The filmmaker resisted and said, I have a First Amendment right not to turn this over. Um, And that First Amendment right was overcome because of the strange facts of this case, namely that Donziger's involvement in the making of the film, so the courts found, not just the federal trial judge, but also the Second Circuit, found that his unusual relationship um, with the filmmaker had compromised the filmmaker's independence and required the filmmaker to turn over 600 hours of field tapes. Well, that's a very troubling precedent in and of itself. In, in this case, you know, the courts felt that, that Donziger's arranging the, uh, the film and he, the fact that he had a certain degree of editorial control over the film had provided a, a sort of an exceptional factual situation. But I fear, as a journalist, that that precedent could be used again in situations where there isn't misconduct um, and where you would have uh, the First Amendment compromised and you would have, you know, potentially investigative uh, documentary filmmakers or even um, print or digital reporters um, who who could be inhibited by a corporate target uh, who want to use the courts to to push back in that fashion. So there have been a lot of aspects of this case that I think will actually cut against the interests of revealing corporate wrongdoing. And the, the biggest one is, is, a, is, is not so much a strict uh, legal precedent, but it's the overall question of whether um, this case be shown to have been fraudulent as determined by the federal judge in New York in March 2014, whether that's going to discredit this kind of aggressive transnational class action lawsuit in general. Rather than being a, a hero in the long run, um, if Steven Donziger ends up being a symbol of dishonesty, um, that's not going to do the, his cause uh, any good at all. And, you know, this this action is now taking place in the United States. But let's go back and, and talk about um, the actual Ecuador natives. Um, you yourself went to Ecuador. What has been the result of this 20-year litigation for the um, villagers and Indians in this area of Ecuador? Have things improved for them? One of the the hugely painful uh, paradoxes here is that after 21 years of litigation, the legal activities themselves have not resulted in any significant improvement or cleanup uh, of of the pollution. And that's in part because the pollution problem is far more complicated than what Texaco did historically in the 70s and 80s. Texaco was sent packing by the Ecuadorian government when the oil industry was nationalized in the early 1990s, and the oil industry was taken over by the Ecuadorian National Oil Company, now known as Petroecuador. And sad to say, Petroecuador, which continues to oversee the oil industry in this region, uh, became every bit as bad a polluter as Texaco had been. So you had continuing pollution through the 90s into the 2000s and even today. Chevron argues that Texaco has cleaned up everything it was responsible for uh, cleaning up under various contracts that it signed with uh, the government of Ecuador in the 1990s. And because it is in the position of being sued in court, is not inclined to compromise and do anything further. Meanwhile, the government of Ecuador, which actually has 
tremendous responsibilities for its own people and for cleaning up uh, historical uh, contamination, not to mention supervising the, and preventing the continuing contamination. The government of Ecuador has turned Chevron into an all-purpose villain and um, basically has resisted undertaking its responsibilities. So you end up with a terrible mess and one that the litigation um, simply has not resolved. Well, Paul, uh, you know, this was a fascinating book. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. And we'll be watching as the appeals go through the courts to see what eventually happens. It, it sounds to me like you may have to uh, be updating for the paperback version should the Second Circuit come down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks for your thanks for your interest. So again, thanks to Paul Barrett, author of Law of the Jungle. And join us next time for the Modern Law Library. I've been your host, Lee Rawls.